Hi. I'm, I so wish that I could be with you today in person. Um, but it's still such an immense privilege to be able to come to you with God's word today. Um, when Sarah gave me a list of passages and dates to choose from this year, I was so happy that this one was available. I honestly expected it to be taken already. So I jumped on the opportunity to talk about this passage for a couple of reasons. One, I love stories and I love thinking and talking and reading about why stories are such a powerful way for us to learn. And this passage gives me the opportunity to geek out a little bit over the way that God uses stories in his word. Second, I love gardening, planning, planting, weeding, watering, harvesting, the whole thing. I love it. But as you're about to find out today, I'm an aggressively mediocre gardener. I like to blame it on my stage of life, my three little kids, but it goes deeper than that. There's a reason that most of my houseplants are hardy types that do best when they're mildly neglected. But I'll get back to that later. To start off, I want to read Mark 4, 1 through 34 together. Um, and I am going to have to refer to my notes some today. I'm sorry, guys. I hope that it's not too distracting. Um, so starting in Mark 4. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil." And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil, and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed, indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear... Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the words, Hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. <laughs> Sorry, my cat is interrupting. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. 
And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. So, there's a lot here. Um, but we can break it down into a couple of sections. We start with a brief description of a setting and then launch straight into a parable. But in verse 10, we get a flash forward to this discussion of the purpose of parables in general, in general, and an interpretation of the parable we just heard in particular. Then in verse 21, we jump back to Jesus' teaching and get three or four, depending on how you're counting, more parables in quick succession. This structure was vaguely familiar to me right away, and I couldn't figure out why until I was listening in on my daughter's second grade math lesson. Those of you who have ever taught kids to do word problems might recognize this teaching method. Here, I'm going to walk you through the first problem, and then... You work out the rest on your own. Mark is basically giving us these parables in a chunk with the interpretation of the first one and a brief explanation as to why Jesus used them and allowing us the, to use this knowledge to understand the last three. So what I want to do today is to start by looking at that discussion that falls in the middle of the passage and then use that to help us think about the parables. So let's start in verses 10 to 12. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So, this is an incredibly uncomfortable couple of verses. Jesus' close friends ask him about the parables. We don't know exactly what they ask, but by his answer, we can kind of assume that part of the question, at least, is why. Why is Jesus teaching the multitudes in stories? Why is he using this format when talking to crowds, when it arguably makes it more difficult to understand his message? On the first read-through, it looks like Jesus is answering 
that question of why by saying, I disguise the truth because I don't want crowds, the crowds who have been following me to understand. Because if they understand, they'll be saved. And then we can infer, and I don't want them to be saved. But this can't be correct, right? We know that Jesus' message is not and has never been that we here in his inner circle matter, but anyone outside of this circle does not. That is not the message of the gospel. Psalm 119 tells us, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my eyes. There seems to be something sort of fundamentally unreasonable about Jesus saying, I use this method of teaching to confuse and blind the multitudes. So if that's the way I understand this at first, and it contradicts what I already know to be true from the rest of scripture, then my understanding has to be flawed. So the first thing to do then to deepen our understanding is to look at some context. Jesus is quoting Isaiah here. The disciples, although they weren't scholars by trade, were all devout Jews in a time when Jewish men and boys would have been at least taught the Old Testament very thoroughly as children. And some of them had probably memorized great swaths of scripture which means that they would have picked up on the fact that Jesus is referencing the language God used to describe the Israelites when he first commissioned Isaiah. And they would know that at that time, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah were split. Israel was a corrupt nation and had been for generations, not following God's law. Judah, on the other hand, had been ruled for a couple of generations by men who followed the Lord. And yet, one of the main characteristics of those kings, which you can find um, in 2 Kings 15, if you want to look more closely later, is that the kings of Judah had failed to destroy the altars to foreign gods. And the people of Judah, while on the one hand they followed God's law, on the other hand, they were still making sacrifices to the other gods. So this is the context that Jesus' audience would have known surrounds these words. So let's read Isaiah 6 and see if that can clarify for us what these verses mean. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. For generations, the Israelites had closed their eyes and ears to God's law. And here God is warning Isaiah and through him, the people he's sent to, that the message Isaiah is tasked with bringing won't be received. It will, in fact, cause the listeners' hearts to be dull, their ears heavy, and their eyes blind. This isn't a commentary on the purpose of the message, 
or its content or its intent or its intent. Rather, it's a forewarning of how hard sinful hearts often respond to God's word. John Calvin puts it this way. As dim-sighted people cannot blame the sun for dazzling their eyes with its brightness, so ungodly men have no right to blame the word for making them worse after having heard it. In creating a parallel between the people Isaiah was sent to and the crowds who follow him, Jesus is commenting on how he expects the word to be received. That these crowds of Jews who, like the people of Judah, know the law and follow the law, will nevertheless be blinded by the secret of the kingdom of God as it was given to the disciples. Which indirectly, I think, gives us the answer to that question of why. Why does he use stories? Because their hearts will be hardened by the unvarnished truth. But let's take a step back here. Because I do want to be careful about the answer we walk away with. Because there's a subtlety here that I think could be easily missed. What I do not think is happening is that Jesus is using parables to dumb down his message or to appeal to the least common denominator. I don't think parables are a kind of sunglasses meant to protect our eyes from what would blind us. What it comes down to is this. Through a parable, we have to actively choose to discover the truth. It isn't dimmed or dumbed down. It's hidden and requires effort on our parts to find it. And through that effort, we come to know the truth in a way that we wouldn't if it was simply laid out for us. I know that I, personally, I can learn from having someone lay out facts for me and tell me this is true. But I gain a whole other level of understanding from having to work to discover that truth. The best example I could think of of this actually comes from algebra. Um, the Pythagorean theorem, a squared plus b squared equals c squared. It's something I learned like everybody else in algebra one in high school. And I mostly learned, um, and I'm, I'm, I mostly knew how to apply it and when to apply it to solve for a variable. And I trusted that it was true because I had been told it was, but also I hated it and I was bad at it and I didn't really understand it, stand it. On the other hand, my freshman year in college, I studied Euclid's elements. Um, and I had to do the actual work of proving that in right angled triangles, the square on the side opposite the right angle equals the sum of the squares in on the sides containing the right angle. In other words, a squared plus b squared equals c squared. Going through the work of having to prove that theorem and discovering why it's true gave me an understanding and appreciation that I could never have had by simply being taught the formula in high school math. And that's just in mathematics. By putting the secret of the kingdom of God in parables, Jesus is allowing us an opportunity, an opportunity to choose to actively discover the truth hidden in the story. 
We get to learn so much better and more deeply than if it was simply laid out in front of us. Of course, we can choose to have ears that don't hear and eyes that don't see and hearts that are dull. We can choose to read or hear these stories and not let them impact our minds. We can look at them like Aesop's fables, cute little stories that confirm what we already think we know, um, and we don't allow them to challenge us. Because ultimately, the kingdom of God is for anyone who wants it enough to choose to pursue it. So, now that we've unpacked verses 10 to 12, and we have a little bit of an understanding, I hope, of why Jesus is using these parables, I want to look next at verses 3 to 9 and 13 to 20. This is one of the only parables we have in which we're giving Jesus interpretation as well as the parable. So I want to look at them both together. So starting in verse 3. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then jumping down to verse 13, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So this is commonly referred to, and it's probably under the heading, this heading in your Bible, as the parable of the sower. But I actually don't like that title. I think that it's misleading. We see the parable of the sower and we immediately jump to put ourselves in the title position as the sower. And then what we take away and what I've often heard taught from this passage is we sow the word, but we can't control how other people are going to receive it. So go out and scatter and some people you meet will be hard-hearted. And some will look like they accept the gospel, but are uh, but they won't endure. And some just have too much else going on and can't focus on the gospel. 
but some are bound to produce fruit. So just keep on scattering that seed and you're bound to make some disciples. And this isn't wrong per se, but it's also not exactly helpful. This interpretation might confirm what we know to be true, that not everyone will react to the same way to the gospel, but that isn't the purpose of parables. As we talked about a minute ago, a parable is meant to challenge us, which is not the same as confirming something we already know. I'm reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids, and over and over again, in every single book, Aslan tells somebody, this is someone else's story. I'm telling you your story. In the same way, this parable is meant to invite us to examine our own hearts and our own responses, not to analyze or judge or excuse someone else's. So I will prefer to retitle this parable, The Parable of the Soils. Because when we place ourselves in the role of the soil, we're immediately confronted with the question of which one am I? So to reframe our perspective, God is the sower, his word is the seed, my heart is the soil, but which one? We're given four options. First, there's the path. The soil is hard and packed down, and the seed that falls there doesn't even have a chance to grow roots because it's snatched away. Jesus tells us that the birds who eat the seed are akin to Satan, immediately snatching the word away. The Bible has a lot to say about hard hearts, and it's almost always, I'm not going to go so far as to say always, but almost always synonymous with stubbornness or pride that leads to rejecting God's will. Second, we have seed that falls in rocky ground, and the plant grows because the topsoil nourishes it, but eventually it's scorched by the sun because there's no depth of root to provide the plant with water. Jesus tells us that this is analogous to being faced with tribulation or persecution on account of the word and being unable to endure because they have no root in themselves. Third are the seeds that fall among thorns and grow up with the weeds and are choked off because there isn't enough nutrient in the soil to nourish both the true seed and the weeds. These weeds are the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and desires for other things. Finally, there's the good soil, which is a heart that is prepared and ready to receive the word, accept it, and allow it to grow and produce fruit. So if I were to ask you which kind of soil you are, there's an obvious right answer, right? Like, it's very clear that the fourth soil is what we should want to be. That's the only one that has a chance. So that's clearly what we should choose. But here's the thing, is that that's not always accurate of us, right? My heart is not always the good soil. And I think we sometimes get stuck on this idea that if I say, well, I recognize hardness in my heart, or I recognize weeds growing up, then we think, oh no, 
I'm not the good soil. That's it. But here's the thing about soil that I think we often forget when we're reading this parable. It's not static. Soil can be changed. If our, uh, if our first question is what type of soil am I, then I think our second needs to be how do I become the type that bears fruit? And this is where I think it actually really, really helps to know something about gardening. Because when there's a problem with the soil in your garden, there's usually something very specific that you can do to fix it. Jesus listeners would know this. They would know that there is no naturally occurring field of soft soil free of rocks and weeds. Just waiting for seeds to be planted. No, it takes work to get soil to that place. There's no way we can do this work without the grace of God. But he's given us tools in scripture. David prayed both, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, asking God to do the work, and seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually, calling his listeners to action. And both of those prayers are necessary. So if I examine my heart and I come to the conclusion that I'm like the path, hard and packed down and ready to immediately reject God's will, what do I need to do to change that attitude? Well, in gardening, the way to soften hard soil is to break it up, to till it. So what tools does scripture give us for breaking up hard hearts? Um, there are many, many passages, but here are just a few that resonated with this theme. In Hosea 10, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. In Micah 6, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. In Zechariah 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. So what does the Bible say when it's talking about hard hearts? It says to seek out the will of the Lord, to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly, and consider the outsider and do not devise evil against anyone. Not because these doing these things will bring you salvation in and of themselves. Not because they make you a good person, but because these are the tools that we have been given to soften and prepare the soil of our hearts to accept the seed of the gospel. So what if I find that I'm like the rocky ground? I'm eager to believe, but quick to wither under the heat of trials. How can I grow roots that will reach water? What does scripture tell us about that? Well, in Psalm 1, 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree, planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In Psalm 119, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. In so many places, but especially in the Psalms, the word of the Lord or the law of the Lord are compared to life-giving streams of water. To access that water, though, we're urged to meditate on scripture day and night. Bind it to our hearts, memorize and internalize and delight in the word of the Lord until we're like the acacia or the olive tree in Isaiah 41, which has deep roots that reach down past the shallow topsoil and break through rocky mountainous soil to get to water. So lastly, what if my heart is full of weeds? Excuse me. So this one really resonates with me, personally. Partly because, as I said in the beginning, I'm an aggressively mediocre gardener. Usually about half of what I plant makes it long enough to bear fruit in my garden. Most years, by about mid-June, my vegetable patch is a mess of weeds. Usually, actually, half of it is really nicely tended, and half of it is a mess of weeds. Several times, I've had weeds choke out my little seedlings before I got out there to save them. And there was one memorable occasion when I noticed something sprouting approximately where I'd planted cucumber seeds. So I weeded around it, and I watered it, and tended it, and I was so happy that something was coming up. And I came back a week later and discovered that I'd mistaken a literal thistle for my cucumber plant. I'd pulled out the good plant and I had tended the weed. And that was super painful, both to my pride and also to my hands when I had to do the hard work of pulling out a rapidly growing thistle covered in thorns. On a spiritual level too, I resonate with the patch of weeds. Jesus tells us that the weeds are like the cares of this world the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. The weeds are idols of the heart that choke out the promises of the gospel. And who can ignore the cares of the world these days? The desire for comfort, stability, control, health, normalcy. These are all cares of the world that become idols. As Anthony so eloquently and often puts it, a good thing that becomes a God thing is a bad thing. But weeds also encompass lies that we believe. When I read the phrase, the deceitfulness of wealth, I'm immediately reminded 
of the way wealth and other earthly blessings are so often mistaken in the church for the fruit of faith. How often do we tend these lies, mistaking them for the true seeds of the gospel, only to realize when it's too late the mistake we've made? Well, the health wealth gospel, the deceitfulness of riches, is the easy target here. I also wanted to acknowledge a similar weed that's much more raw. The church writ large has a very long history of racism. While many of us are making an effort to pull out this weed, it's still alive and well in many Christian organizations. For centuries, the American church argued the biblical basis for slavery. In some states, a black man who was caught preaching the gospel would have been arrested and beaten. Well into the 60s and 70s, prominent church leaders fought hard against the pursuit for, for equal rights. And today, so many white Christians express more dismay at protests than they do at the killings that have sparked those protests. This is a weed with really deep roots. And as anyone who gardens knows, these are the hardest to pull out. You think you've finally gotten it all. When something new sprouts out of the ground that looks suspiciously like that thing you've been trying to eradicate. In the current climate, we're finding a lot of weeds that we thought were gone are popping back up. They look different enough from what we'd seen before that we can ignore them for a little while, but the root is the same, and so is the damage that they cause. What better example can we find of a desire that is choking out the gospel than the desire in the majority white church to ignore the sins of our predecessors and the intense pain and grief that that sin is still causing for our black and brown neighbors. So what does scripture say about idols of the heart and false gospels? Again, it has a lot to say, and I don't have a lot of time. So here are just a few passages to look at. In Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. 2 Kings 17, 37 and 38, you shall not fear other gods and you shall not forget the covenant that I have made with you. Ezekiel 14, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces from all your abominations. And then in the New Testament, 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? If we want to be able to recognize weeds and pull them out, by the root before they can choke our faith, then we need to know the God we serve. We need to have the knowledge of the Lord that will allow us to test and examine the things we believe. If we don't know God, then we have no hope 
of being able to tell the difference between his true word and our false idols. Each of these heart attitudes and the tools we're given to address them are different, but they also have things in common. And I want to highlight one thing they all share. All of these tools I've laid out point us to one thing. Greater knowledge of and especially relationship with Christ. Jesus speaks to everyone, no matter the condition of their heart, when he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Ultimately, like David, there are two sides to our prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And your face, Lord, do I seek. And this, I think, is the final principle from learn for learning from parables. They all unfailingly require us to seek out and choose relationship. It's good to reflect on your own heart. And it is good to allow yourself to be challenged. But without the desire to be in relationship with Jesus, we will fail to understand the truth that is hidden in these stories and metaphors. I'm running out of time here. This has already gone fairly long. So like Mark, I want you to go with your small group. Take the principles that are laid out in this first parable and apply them to interpreting the others in this passage. Look for the challenging questions and look for the answers that point you back to scripture. But most importantly, most importantly, look for how the parable is calling you to be in relationship with Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for these ladies who will be watching this. Um, I pray that you will speak to them and that you will um, be with them as they go from here to do challenging work, to ask themselves questions of their hearts that sometimes hurt and um, sometimes make us really uncomfortable, God. Um, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with that desire to seek your face um, and seek out relationship with you. I thank you so much for this time um, that we have to spend together and just dig into your word and get to know you better. In your name, Lord. Amen.